Welcome, everybody, to episode, I think we're going to call this episode 38, actually, of the podcast, Bill. Uh, I'm, I think that's right. I'm Tom Jocelyn. I'm a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, Bill Rocio. Bill, you want to say hi besides the, you know, agreeing with me on the num- num- numbering of our podcast here? Hello, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and a Happy New Year to everyone. So this episode is a little bit different. We're just doing sort of it's it's meant to be in good humor, but with some serious stuff. It's sort of we joked about this in previous episodes of the podcast that we were going to do an airing of the grievances. And if you remember back to the Seinfeld series of which I'm a fan, uh, there was the Festivus episode where Frank Costanza uh, infamously has his own holiday uh, that he basically invents and during the holiday season. And part of it is that you know everybody gets to air their grievances. And we're going to do the same thing in the same sort of, you know, style, I guess. It's sort of, you know, half-hearted, it's half-joking, but also half-serious. But, you know, as I was sitting down to sort of plan this out for this week, uh, not that there's any serious planning that went into this, just sort of, I guess, thinking of, thinking about it while walking around, right, Bill? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, as I was thinking about this this week, I... Uh, you know, I thought, you know, look, in reality, personally, I don't have any grievances. You know, 2020 has been an incredibly rough year for a lot of people. Um, you know, you, you look at the toll that, that COVID, the coronavirus has taken. You look at the, the toll on the economy. Um, you look at all the economic dislocation, all the problems people are facing. Um, you look at uh, the lives that are lost in the different, you know, combat theaters that Bill and I cover, war zones that we cover. And sort of everything that goes on in those those places, and you know, really overall, personally, I don't have any grievances. The, the world is a chaotic mess right now, and there's a lot of horrible stuff going on. And uh, you know, I guess basically, I would open this episode by saying this is really meant to be sort of in jet, half in jest, half serious, because on a personal level, I don't really have anything to complain about, and shouldn't complain about anything. What do you think, Bill? Yeah, you know, Tom, you're absolutely right. I mean, given what's going on, I, I would say me and my family are blessed to to be where we are today. And, and we certainly, you know, we feel for everyone out here who's been impacted by Corona, by the current conflicts or whatever hardships you're you're facing. Um, Tom, I know, Tom, you and your family and, and mine, we, we wish you all the best this year. Absolutely. Upcoming year. Absolutely, yes. yeah. I mean, we wish everybody the best, except for the haters, I guess. No? No? I mean, I guess, <laughs> you know, no, I guess we wish everybody... I'll be, ge- I'll be generous. generous. All right. We wish everybody the best. We, wish everybody the best. Um, yeah, we don't wish any ill will for anyone, really. Um, but, you know, we're talking about the area of grievances. Um, what we're talking about are sort of, you know, different things that we've come across in our careers doing this. And we've been doing this for a long time now. And, you know, I jotted down several things that sort of still my pet peeves or bug me. And I guess I'll make those my grievances. And I think you've got a couple as well, Bill. Correct. I do. I, the first thing on my list, um, and again, you know, this is sort of goes to the heart of what we do and how, how we do our work is that, you know, what I part of what I always struggle with is that there's really no room um, and a lot of the discussions of these issues that we work on when it comes to jihadism and the, the reaction, the sort of post 9-11 world that we live in, there's no, there's no room or little room for ambivalence. Um, you know, when I say ambivalence, it mean, means, you know, holding contradictory ideas in mind and sort of having, you know, opinions that basically are inconsistent with one another because you sort of are, um, well, indeed ambivalent about what's going on. You know, I mean, I think that comes through 
in our discussions of Afghanistan, for example, you know, we have deep ambivalence there. You know, I mean, it's not it's not a, exactly a, a situation where we're gung ho about anything. Um, but on really all these issues, I, I sort of ambivalent, and that's sort of something that I think um, a lot of times in the Washington policy debates doesn't come through. Everything sort of gets boiled down to a sort of a binary sort of debate or discussion, and a lot of times the sort of nuance or the um, tensions in, in various arguments aren't really explored. And part of the reason why we started this podcast was because, you know, sometimes or a lot of times it doesn't really come through in the writing. I've tried to, I've tried in over time to basically put more of the uncertainty, more of the ambivalence into my own writing when it comes to policy. Now, a lot of times I'm not writing about policy. Most of the time I'm writing about just sort of trying to figure out what's going on. And there's a bifurcation of those two things I think everybody should focus on and we try and focus on. Um, and I think a lot of people don't, but we try to. Um, but what do you think about that, Bill, as my first sort of grievance on all this? Tom, I could not agree with you more. As you said, binary thinking is prevalent. There's no room for nuance. I, I think Afghanistan really is the perfect uh, case. Um, the, the, the point that you make about policy versus facts, um, you know, I could not agree more. You know, you and I are, are have been strong advocates for getting the facts right, for, for looking at these groups, um, and then coming up with, uh, you know, drawing a pop, uh, a proper view of who our enemy is, what they're about, what their goals, what their, their tactics, what their strategy is, and then developing a policy, whereas often what we see in Washington is the opposite. Let's, you know, just define our policy outcome that we hope to achieve, and then we'll fill in the blanks. Uh, you know, we'll backfill in the blanks. Um, you know, there's one thing I'm not ambivalent on, uh, Tom, I will say, is um, I am not ambivalent on um, pressing the fight against our enemies, our true enemies. Uh, uh, they do uh, not deserve my forgiveness, and I do not wish them a safe and happy new year. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. But when and where you do that and how you do it, that's where the ambivalence comes into play and how you define exactly. it. And that, does that opens exactly. up a whole can of worms, right? I mean, that's that's the issue, right, on, on all this stuff. Um, you know, but ambivalence, you know, and when I say ambivalence too, when I, when I talk about that, I think, you know, part of what's lost now um, or, or is being lost, I guess, in the Western tradition is the tradition of skepticism, you know, and you know, somebody would say to me, uh, times in my career, I've heard somebody say, oh, you're skeptical. Um, yeah, you should be skeptical of everything, right? Skepticism is sort of the, is sort of the, is sort of the, the way you start to get at the truth, right? Um, it's not that, um, you know, I, one of the things I've, I've been thinking about recently is it's not a matter of, I think there's some people that always have to be right. They always want to be right. Or, you know, and I think that what I try and do, or what I want to do anyway, is I want to try and get it right. And so, you know, there's a difference between being right and getting it right. And getting it right is a process. I mean, we certainly are hard, you know, far from perfect. I mean, that's, you know, I don't think anybody would claim otherwise. I don't think anybody's perfect in their analysis. But, you know, getting it right is sort of a, is a, a thing over time that you have to, you have to sort of work at. Um, and that's part of the problem I have with sort of the policy debate on all this stuff and how these issues are discussed is that everybody sort of, a lot of people anyway, I think when, when these issues are discussed, they sort of want to just pretend that they know with certainty that they're right about it, about what they're saying and what they're recommending when in, 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 in reality, uh, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you're not ambivalent, if you're not skeptical, if you're not, um, if you don't have doubt, 
about what's going on in all these issues, then you're probably not really working very hard to get it right. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, Tom. And and you know what? It, the the lack of skepticism, particularly among the amongst the press, when government officials are stating, you know, supposed facts, repeating. I hate to use this again, Tom. I mean, God, ad nauseum we've discussed. But the fifty to hundred Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, for instance, you and I have said all along. We don't know what that number exactly is, but we know that that fifty to hundred estimate that was given for six straight years was dead wrong. We knew that. And there was zero skepticism from the press. They just repeated it ad nauseum. We see the press constantly doing this, just repeating what government, they're essentially serving as stenographers instead of providing uh, an analytic take, a, a skeptical view of what government officials are telling you. I mean, if you know, one of the things I've, I've learned over the years is I could tell which reporters rely on the same exact same sources. I can't tell you who those sources are, but I could tell you I know that they're relying on the same people because they'll get something wrong and they'll keep getting something wrong and they'll keep repeating it. You know, as soon as someone tells me something and then I discover it's false, I have to turn around and reevaluate that person that I'm talking to and look at them and everything they say from that point on. And I'm not saying just getting something wrong in the sense of, uh, you know, there's there's big wrongs and there's small wrongs. Uh, you know, getting a number, particularly, you know, at a, over time, it's hard to explain here, but, you know, but getting the overall view, getting the overall picture wrong and repeating it and saying it time and time again, when it's proven to be wrong, that's when I know there's a big problem. We just don't see that type of skepticism from um, from reporters, particularly that is that's supposed to be their job. And I see it less and less and less. Well, the interesting thing about, you know, and that is like, you know, I, this gets to my ambivalence on all this, you know, when we talk about Afghanistan, for example, and getting it right in terms of what Al-Qaeda is doing there and the presence there and the relationship with the Taliban, you know, it's long past time to get it right, I think. I don't think that anybody's going to get it right. And I, I certainly wouldn't base any policy recommendation on, you know, um, the idea that we have to stay forever to get it right. I just don't, I, I just don't think that way, you know. Um the point is that as the U.S. draws down from Afghanistan and presumably will leave in the coming months, um, you know, I think upon departure, the U.S. should be clear-eyed about what's being left behind, something you and I have said numerous times, you know. Um, and again, that's presuming that there is a complete withdrawal. I mean, obviously, we're not in control of policy, so we have no idea what the Biden team is exactly going to do. But we think they're, you know, obviously, they're sort of there's a significant chance of that anyway uh, in the coming year for 2021. But the point is, is not, again, like, you know, as long as I think in terms of a policy recommendation on that, as long as the U.S. was there, we should have struggled to get that right. The U.S. should have struggled, worked to get that right. And the point is they didn't, you know, uh, and I don't think that's fixable now. Yeah, Tom, and, and that'll get to my uh, my next grievance as well. I mean, and I'll, you know, I have it listed as uh, Zalmay Kalazade, who's the U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan's uh, Reconciliation basically the guy who's tasked with signing the deal with the Taliban for so-called peace. We all know it's a withdrawal deal. I mean, please, Khalid, stop trying to sell us this this false peace. There was just an attack in Ghazni, um, and lots of women and children were killed in this. And Khalid comes out with this seven-step tweak or uh, tweak thread, and he condemns the attack, but he won't name the attacker. It's really interesting. And let's face and he's it, done that. He's done that before, Bill. I mean, he's, he's done this time yeah. and time again, Tom. Yeah. And I'm tired of it. 
Um, he, he can't name, he can't say that it's the Taliban. And in the same statement, he's intimating that the Afghan government is just as culpable in the, in the death of Ghazni as the Taliban is who tried to carry out the attack. He can't bring himself any longer to condemn the Taliban because he, all he sees is something that he thinks is peace. And, yeah, uh, I don't even yeah. I don't even know if he thinks it's peace. He's just basically yeah, he's, well, he's, he's selling what he's selling whatever he's selling. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean with with uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, I mean, a couple things. I mean, one, as you pointed out early on, you testified alongside him, and now he's contradicted himself in terms of all the, the main bullet points in his testimony that day, and he hasn't provided any good evidence for for contradicting himself on all that. When it comes to the relationship between the Taliban and Al Qaeda, he now vouches for the Taliban as a counterterrorism partner, or at least did in the deal that he signed in February 29th of two thousand twenty. That's on my grievance list too, because you know, again, we—I I know we're repeating ourselves, but you, you us can leave Afghanistan without vouching for the Taliban, you know. And but you know, there's a grievance here too when it comes to the view of diplomacy, which is that if there was real diplomatic gains to be made with talking with the Taliban, then sure, I'm not against talking to anybody, you know, uh, you know, basically in principle. But it has to be rooted in an actual understanding of what's going on, who you're talking to, and what you're going to get out of it, and how you're going to go about doing it. And the truth of the matter is that that's not what happened here at all, right? I mean, the Taliban hasn't given up anything uh, and, and has extracted concessions. And um, the U.S. has basically engaged in submissive, servile diplomacy with the Taliban. I mean, what, what interest does that serve, you know? Uh, and vouching for the Taliban as our counterterrorism partners they've done, um, which is on my grievance list too. And we've talked about this all the time ad nauseum, so I don't want to dwell on it, but um, without any actual evidence from the Taliban that they're willing to change their behavior, um, strikes me as just absolutely bizarre, you know? So I think the Biden team is is confronted with a no-win situation in Afghanistan. I think Biden is sort of, uh, you know, President-elect Biden is, is sort of inclined to do what? I don't know, probably get out. But, you know, I, again, if you actually look at this deal, which, by the way, the deal also includes a clause, this is on my grievance list as well, saying the U.S. basically gives up you know, any opportunity to defend itself by committing military, you know, threatening military action in Afghanistan forevermore as part of this deal. I mean, wow. So we're basically, we're going to now say that the U.S. isn't going to have the right to self-defense to take out an al-Qaeda terrorist who pops up in Afghanistan post-withdrawal, which is basically what the deal says, you know, if you actually read the language in it. Um, so this is all part of why, you know, okay, you're going to get out of Afghanistan, get out, you don't need to whitewash the Taliban on the way out the door, which is what, which is what this effectively did. Um, and I think I just gave a whole bunch of re- grievances probably in, in one. <laughs> I knew it when I mentioned Calzade, Tom, I, I, I kind of knew it would set, set go down this rabbit hole. You off. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. right. Exactly. And you know, and, and everyone calls this a peace deal and I know we've referred it to a, a withdrawal deal. And the more I think of it, it's, it's a surrender. Uh, this, I can't look at this thing as anything but, a a surrender to the Taliban, uh, we're destroying equipment. We're going to, you know, because we can't get it out of the country quick enough because it's cheaper to do so. This isn't how you, if you negotiated a, a, a peace agreement with your adversary, this isn't how it would look. Everything that we're seeing, you know, I hate to, I hate to say it this way. I hate that 19 plus years of sacrifice of, of, of blood and treasure in Afghanistan has led to defeat, but I can't look at this any other way. And, um, you know, uh, defeat uh, to 
the horrific Taliban, the, a horrible jihadist group that is going to enslave Afghans yet again. It's doing it already in areas under its control. Um, without without I, having any evidence of a break of al-Qaeda, which is the, the right. principal selling point of this, this deal. I mean, that, that's what's so absurd about this whole thing. I mean, you know, we're, we're sitting here however many months, you know, out now from this. And, you know, the, the, the Trump administration sold it hard, this idea that the Taliban was now our counterterrorism partner against al-Qaeda. And there's just no evidence for that. There's no evidence for that as, at all. And there's such ambivalence towards afghanistan or apathy towards afghanistan here in the united well there's States. apathy yeah i mean the ambivalence i no. get i'm a, i'm ambivalent I'm, right I, I, yeah i'm, I'm ambivalent, I, you know yeah. i mean that's yeah. the whole point i got the wrong a word yeah no it's all right apathy i you know apathy <laughs> i object to but ambivalence i i get i'm ambivalent you know but but the bottom line is look i don't think any of this is all part of why we're doing this podcast is i think people need to understand that just because we remain clear-eyed about the taliban and folks we've remained clear-eyed about the taliban when everybody else sort of started to put see them through rose-colored glasses um, that's our argument, but we defend that one um, vigorously. Um, that doesn't mean it's easy to do, Tom. I mean, it's you a know, pile no, of facts. Nobody a mountain of facts. Yeah. You know, no one challenges us on this situation. They ignore us. They put us to the side, but they'll never debate us about this. Well, no, they. they, they I see they people know. on Twitter and elsewhere. They have their talk. Their ah, talk that's not serious. That's not serious. Tom. No, I mean that's actually we're going to get to Twitter as one of my grievances, by the way. But yeah, no, I mean, it's they have these talking points. The Taliban was never, you know, I don't want to repeat it all. They didn't have any international objectives, you know, just local. You know, it's all, you know, what happens in Afghanistan stays in Afghanistan. Uh, no, uh, we've debunked all that so many times. But, um, you know, the, but the bottom line is it doesn't mean that we're itching for more war in Afghanistan or itching for more U.S. military involvement in the war, right? I mean, it's just the thing is we look at this as Americans who want to defend American interests and values and, and personnel around the globe. And... You know, I mean, to be honest with you, I think if this is a thing too, you know, some agreements too. Sometimes you have like the endless war crowd, you know, doesn't like us because they because we don't fit within with them ideologically. I don't know if we fit in with anybody ideologically now, um, but actually, you know, if they were smart critics, right, or or actually smart at using our stuff, they'd realize that there are a lot of criticisms here of war America's war fighting post nine yeah. eleven that really draw into question the whole thing and basically mean you should be, yes, indeed, very skeptical going forward about getting involved in any other conflict, right? Yeah, Tom, that, that's exactly right. I mean, if particularly for the isolationists, right, we, which we're not, but if you look at what we're saying, we're saying we're, we don't fight wars properly, so why should we get into them? I mean, that's the argument an isolationist can make using our material. Um, it's... It's shocking that it's not done. Instead, they just say, end the endless wars. But to me, it's it's really an issue. My concern with our involvement, it, we, we should always be very careful about where we do decide to uh, commit U.S. blood and treasure, particularly blood. Um, but there are times, Afghanistan was required. Uh, our, you know, Al-Qaeda attacked us using Afghanistan as a base, and the Taliban refused. And, of course, the apologists have all sorts of excuses yeah, well, now for that. They can go to hell. Yeah, Tom, I with you, man. I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, no, they can. I mean, just start with the 9-11 you Commission know, report and go through it and, you know. The, exactly. Like anybody, so, actually, but, you know, I, I saw somebody refer, refer to these as the Imperial Wars the other day, and I won't say who, but. I mean. What are you who, talking about? Who like, who the hell wants to be in Afghanistan prior to 9-11, you know? Who wants to be there now, you know? I mean, look at how the you know, eagerness to get out of Iraq, where right. you actually could have done imperial things like extract oil and sell it. Instead, we turned over contracts to the Chinese and the French and other countries. Right. So it's and the exact, exact opposite of imperialistic, you know. It, it's, it's, these are just 
stupid arguments that I yeah. I just dismiss out of hand anymore. But, uh, you know, look, I mean, the, the point I was trying to make there is that we need to be very careful given how naive and and how poorly we fight these wars because it's not worth spending U.S. blood and treasure on wars if we're not willing to see them through, if we're not willing to achieve those policy goals. Um, the only, yeah, you know, I, I, we really need to question getting involved. I agree. I, the, only, the, only ca- the only caveat I'd add there, as you know, and we've talked about so many times on the podcast and elsewhere, is that part of why these are these get lumped into the endless wars, and the endless war stuff is on my grievance list too, obviously, uh, because I just think it's shallow rhetoric. I mean, that, that is, that's not to say there isn't a lot to criticize or there isn't a good case to be made against the U.S. involvement in different areas, of course, you know. Um, but the thing is, is that um, it gets around the, the fact that the jihadis are principally insurgents. I mean, that's what they are. And they, they that's how they that's how they war fight. And so they're, they're basically designed or built to fight indefinitely. That's the problem. That's the fundamental problem. You know, when people talk about the endless wars and that sort of rhetoric, I mean, you know, Part of the critique is that people want, I think some Americans want a Jacksonian-style victory. They want a quick, swift war, which I get. I mean, that's that's the ideal, right? The problem is that, there, were, as we've talked, and we're going to have another episode about this specifically when it comes to Afghanistan, there have been very few opportunities post-9-11 to have that Jacksonian-style victory in this com- these, this conflict, and the U.S. didn't didn't take it for one reason or another. Um, so that, and by Jacksonian victory, I mean a sort of a swift, clear defeat of our enemies and just get out, you're done, right? The problem is that they are set up to avoid that sort of thing. They being the jihadis, whether Al Qaeda, ISIS, or their allies, you know, they're set up to basically keep fighting indefinitely. And then the the times that the U.S. possibly could have, you know, unwound these insurgencies and really done damage to them, um, you know, they did. The U.S. did damage to the ISIS caliphate for sure, basically working through proxies and allies and partners. Okay, you know, um, and it's done has done damage at others at different times as well. Um, but basically, it, it basically there was never been sort of any recognition that this was going to be indeed a long war if you're going to keep fighting them. You know, I mean that that the the name of the Long War Journal, um, you know, was sort of a concept that bubbled up very briefly in defense circles and then went went by the wayside, right, Bill? Yeah, exactly. And Tom, if and and you know, I could not agree with you more. If keeping a lid on the problem or containing a problem is your policy objective because you don't want to commit a lot of troops to say, let's say Somalia. Fine. Let's be clear about that. Let's say it make the case to the American public, why there's a need to fight a, uh, you know, a limited war and then fight it. And and then keep explaining, look, you know, explain that your Bob's our enemy. It's a part of Al Qaeda, et cetera, et cetera. Have the debate, but that's the, have the debate. Yeah. Have, have the conversation, have the debate. Not every war, these wars, particularly as you perfectly noted, Jacksonian victories are going to be few and far between. Um, I would have argued that we may have had an opportunity. I can't wait till we do this episode, Tom, if, if, the Battle of Tora Bora certainly may have been an opportunity to do that. We can't build a time. Operation machine. Jawbreaker, you know, and the yep, sort of the, you know, the, the mythology around the success of that early invasion of Afghanistan, which we're going to debunk in a future sort of episode. Um, I can't wait. And and um, yeah, so like you know, but the, the this is your your point is one hundred percent correct. We just we have communicating to the American public why we engage in conflict is key but this is something well, i would say at that over- before even communicating it you have the debate right i mean this is this is sure this is part of part absolutely. part of the critique that i actually agree with is that i think congress needs to do more in terms of yeah absolutely yeah John. authorizing military force and there needs to be more of a debate had 
through the elected representatives of the American people about where and when U.S. troops are are deployed and ha- and how this go about it. Instead of sort of you know, I was looking at I don't want to get off on a whole tangent here on this stuff. But I was looking for example at Somalia because of the, the U.S. limited uh, involvement there and the limited number of troops are being sort of withdrawn in neighboring countries. And I I was just going back through it and I was thinking to myself, you know, uh, you know, under what. How did the U.S. actually get involved? How did this yeah, happen? how did they actually yeah. get involved yeah. there? Right, like this is yeah. this, and this is the part of the critique of all this that I actually agree with you and I have agreed with. Right, it should be. Yep. It should be the case that this doesn't just. It shouldn't be happening like on autopilot, right? Where the U.S. military is all of a sudden sent into a place and there's no big debate about you know, what we're doing or how how the U.S. is doing it. I mean, I think that needs to be had. Now, I think where we differ from, so we agree with the critics on that one. Where you and I differ is that you know they would play disconnected dots on Shabab. We'd say no, sure. Shabab is part of Al Qaeda. You know now. If you don't want to, if you still don't want to go into Somalia or you want to get involved, okay, you know, but don't don't tell me Shabab, which is openly loyal to Al Qaeda, and there's a whole evidentiary trail here that makes that very clear that how that works. Um, don't you know? Don't 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 tell me they're not Al Qaeda, you know. But the point is, is, at least have the debate, have the discussion about that, have it about all these different areas, and so I I agree with that. I think that that's part of the reason why that things have devolved the way they have. Is that there? There, the process that the U.S. should have for getting involved in these conflicts should be more, should be more deliberate. It should be more thought out. It should be more robust on the Hill. There needs to be more of a sort of a debate about this stuff, right, Bill? Like a formal, a yeah, formal I, legislative debate. I would say, you know, absolutely. The Congress's acquiescence on the issues of war is, you know, wasn't on my list, but it definitely should it was be on my list, which is why I reasons. brought it up. So you know, it, yeah, no, it's that's great, yeah. Tom. And you're you're thinking ahead. You know, look, I could tell you how and why we got involved in Somalia. Sure. But this is— But I was asking the specific the, sort of, like, you know, in terms of legislation, in terms of, you know— Sure. Oh, no, no. No, yeah, yeah like exactly. In terms of and, how did this actually become a decision made? And that that's a part of the yeah. problem, right? Is that the, how the decision it is made is not part of a process involving the American people and their elected representatives, you know, and communication these, from political leaders, you know? These wars are so small that the president can sort of— they want to fight these war wars like Somalia or Yemen sort of on the down low because they're low intensity conflicts, right? Where you don't need to commit a large number of troops. You're not going to declare who are you declaring war on in Somalia, right. a terrorist group? Who are you declaring war on in Yemen? So Congress doesn't feel the need to get involved in these. So, but this is it's sort of, it's but that is the root of the problem. Yeah, that's the mistake. So Congress yeah. isn't isn't involved in these conflicts at the beginning. There is no discussion of them, and then they wind up in – You know, we think that our involvement is helping. I'm not saying our involvement is making it worse. I don't buy into those arguments. Look at Syria. The U.S. didn't get involved in Syria early on and had to later because it blossomed. But these conflicts, these terror groups are effective. They're efficient. They're, they have deep ties with the local communities. And so these conflicts grow slowly over the time, and the next thing you know, oh, shit, we now have 700 troops. Involved in fighting Shabab in Somalia, and then that actually almost looks like some kind of war. And then people are like, "How did this happen? How did you know?" If, as you said, Tom, if Congress is involved in the early decision-making problem process of these, we will have far fewer problems. Yeah, well, uh, the other I, thing I, is, I if, if the U.S. If, and if it's decided that the U.S. doesn't go into place through this process, then so be it. That's the decision you look so at. You it. have to. We'll, we'll document. You know, mm. we'll, I'll be glad to document whatever the decision is, however it goes. I mean, have a debate about it, have a discussion about it, but. This is, I think this is, the more I thought about this and the what's actually driving this, I think this is a big part of it. I mean, part of it is that you have the AUMF, the Authorization for the Use of Military Force, was formalized in 2001. 
you know, by the way, looking through the Somali coverage, I'm not a legal expert, so I don't, I can't say for certainty, but it looks like that the, the, the conflict in Somalia was not actually um, begun under the 2001 AUMF, at least based on some of the commentary I saw. There's other legal justifications for it. Um, okay, I mean, this is the point, though, is this gets all murky in terms of how the decision-making is done, all this stuff. Now, look, I mean, you're going to have, like, the, the Rand Pauls of the world who there's never going to be a conflict that Rand Paul's going to want to get involved in, right? I mean, you can— But let's have that debate. Right, exactly. I, I'd love to have exactly. that debate with yeah. Rand Yeah, right, exactly. Right. And, 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 there, and there are going to be zealots on the other side who are going to want to get involved in every conflict, right? And so, but the point is, is that at least have at least have a sort of a process or a real argument and debate about this stuff um, on the Hill uh, through legislation, so that it's actually the will of the American people is represented. And then, and then part, and then what happens is you have politicians run for or against this stuff. These the instead of just sort of you know now basically we've this is part of my big grievance. All this we sort of devolved into this sort of blame America first sort of mantra on all this all these issues where there's plenty of critiques you can made be made of course but it's sort of now in this sort of scenario where everything is america's fault that the, you know it's not america's fault the taliban has fought on in afghanistan i mean america's tried to extricate itself from that conflict numerous times as you and i know since you know 2012 really um so but the point is at least at least in terms of all these wars in terms of all these conflicts which are a lot of them are low intensity conflicts now from the american side at least have a, a real robust discussion about why America is there, if it should be there, and what what's actually the, the point of being there in the first place, right? Yeah. yeah, and Tom, and these conflicts are never put into the wider context, right? It's there's a war in Shabab, and that's wholly unrelated to right. fighting AQAP in Yemen, which is wholly unrelated to fighting al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan. But if someone was to take and put this picture together and say, we're pressuring an enemy that's united on multiple fronts— there's a need to fight them that way. It makes, it helps people understand. Like, what drives me crazy is I talk to people, you know, who aren't in this, you know, friends or acquaintances that, hey, what do you do, Bill, for a living? And then you ultimately have that uncomfortable discussion about what I do for a living. And, and they'll ask questions. And I find that people get this. The average American has a an intuition about the enemy that we're fighting, whereas, it seems our politicians who are closer to the issue and and and, and uh, analysts and others, they seem to not understand these issues. I don't know if it's intentional or unintentional, but I'd love to see the American public have a wider involvement in this. And that debate comes through Congress. Yeah. That's why I would like to see this. Yeah, I mean, this is just goes to one of my big items on the grievance list is sort of the epistemology of all this and the ignorance. That um, still, after all these years, you know, I think from the people we've talked to, there's better better agreement now in U.S. government circles about, for example, how Al Qaeda is structured, right, and how what it looks like and that sort of thing. But um, you know, certainly in the wider sort of counterterrorism analytic community, there's no agreement at all, um, and there's stuff that's that's sort of assumed, and then and then these elaborate analyses are built on these assumptions. Basically, you know, one of the things that you and I have talked about quite a few times is that. You know, this is where I get the disconnect the dots phrase from, is that there's sort of this sort of um, inherent drive to basically pretend like, you know, every Al-Qaeda group isn't really Al-Qaeda. We saw that with Shabab in Somalia. You and I were almost alone in saying, no, you're wrong. There is a relationship there uh, between them and Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda is actually embedded throughout the Islamic Courts Union, and then Shabab evolved out of that. Um, you know, we've seen that time and time again across the board. Now, obviously, you know, in some of these areas, that doesn't necessarily mean the U.S. wants to get involved. I'm just, you know, basically have to sort of get the analysis right of what's actually going on, however. Um, and 
I guess part of my one of my grievances is that this many years that we're sitting here in 2020 going into 2021, and I'm still reading stuff that just and we're I'm gonna have another example as one of my other grievances. You know, you still read stuff that just doesn't basically tells you there's not a common understanding of this at all at this point. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. I, I couldn't agree. Well said. It's it's one of my biggest grievances that we cannot define this enemy. 19 plus years after 9-11. It's, it's amazing. It's astounding. It's a testament to our poor political leadership, to uh, intelligence uh, analysts and, and, and leaders of the intelligence yeah, I think there's some. I think there's some good leaders. analysts in the intelligence community. There's some. Yeah, but, but Tom, yeah. it's not, you yeah. know, this isn't something that's spoken with a unified voice. No, no. And, and we've seen intelligence politicized time and time again on these issues that's how you got the stupid 50 to 100 al-qaeda and we could point to numerous other right remember the, the beginning of the iraq war um uh, or the islamic states rise just twenty thousand islamic state fighters you it was even less than that yeah it was like you know there was a range i mean yeah, there's the whole ca- counting there's twenty thousand to thirty there's 5, 13 5 13 5 to 21 5 oh, or something right, like that that was the right. original number yeah. you know was some yeah. that, i mean whatever i mean but the thing is it's like i you know part of that is politicization but part of that the politicization was calling it the JV team and downplaying it and doing all that stuff, which yeah, is what absolutely. the administration did. Absolutely. You know, um, it wasn't the it wasn't the the, ca- the counting problem. I think was more reflects the epistemological problems, the issues here. You know, in terms of defining all this. You know, um, in terms of how this all works. You know, again, I I think this is why I let off this episode with ambivalence as my number one sort of a grievance is that you can't have ambivalence uh, in any of these conversation discussions on this stuff. Because if you've just listened to all the other subcategories we've just listed off, there's ambivalence throughout all of them, right? Um, you know, on, on all these issues. Um, I'm going to come back to the one of the, one of the related issues for you, Bill, on this. I think it's going to tie into one of yours. But when it comes to epistemology and sort of lack of a common understanding, here's one of my grievances too: is that so on August 7th of this year, the Israelis killed Abu Muhammad Al Mazari and his daughter in a suburb of Tehran, and he was the deputy emir of Al Qaeda at the time. And, you know, this is one of those issues where maybe people should have stopped to say, hey, why was this top guy from Al-Qaeda and others, by the way, why were they in Iran? And why were they being protected there? Is there, is there actually a history here that's worth exploring of details and facts from the 9-11 Commission report and other sources? But instead of doing that, you just had this sort of reflexive, you know, what was he doing in Iran? How could that be? You know, and it's like, what are you talking about? You know, have you, have you actually been paying attention? You know, you go through the 9-11 Commission report or other official sources and you can find this whole standard history on all this stuff. There's all sorts of facts and evidence that you have to understand. It doesn't mean that they're always on the same side. Hardly, you know, I mean, they're against each other. But it just, I saw sort of that example, that report, that story was a good example of how the sort of the preconceived biases sort of play out, right? Basically, there was this sort of collective sort of, you know, you know, feigning of ignorance about why Al Qaeda would have senior personnel personnel in Iran after all these years, where it wasn't surprising you and me, Bill. No, not at all. I mean, you know, the same newspapers that reported about these relationships, about the about senior Al Qaeda leaders sheltering inside of Iran, are all of a sudden confused and and bewildered by the fact that we kill Al Qaeda's deputy. You know, by the way, on on that point, you know, look, the New York Times, you know, does a lot of it does a lot of great reporting. It does, you know, and um, there's some of the stuff that it produces really excellent. And so I don't this is not a an ideological bash New York Times type of session for me at all. 
Okay. No, not at all. But you know, the, I wasn't going to name names. Well, but, but it was it was in the it was in a Times article where they said it was surprising to find Abu Muhammad al-Mazri in Iran. No, no, it wasn't, folks. Right? There were all sort. There's a whole story there. Yeah. You have to know the whole story, but there is a whole story there. But you know, I look back through it, and what was funny about it is the New York Times was one of the publications that when the 9/11 Commission report came out and they found all these ties between Iran and Al Qaeda, they reported on that in the New York Times. There's all sorts of other reports in the New York Times about Iran and Al Qaeda that would tell you there's more to the story than just they're opposed to each other because of theological differences. That there is that whole history there. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to do a whole episode on this. But yet that stuff wasn't consulted, and and it was almost like you know there's such a lack of understanding of these issues that basically when something like this happens, you know. It's instead of saying, "Hey, you know, this is a complicated story. We have to take into account all of, all these different facts and evidence, and everything." It's just sort of this rush to say, "Oh, you know, it, no, it's all surprising, and there's no way this could be because they're to- they're just bitter enemies, and they're not really on the same side. They couldn't possibly work together at all." And it just to me, it's just so, such a limited understanding of human behavior. And I, obviously, I mean, this this goes to a part of my grievance list as well. What's that rooted in? I mean, I don't want to speak to the motivations of those individual reporters in that case. Um, but broadly speaking, when we talk about Iran Al Qaeda, one of the things I've run into is that it's sort of this reflexive sort of thing that you're just trying to justify war against Iran by bringing it up, right? Even though I've written consistently against that, um, you know, doesn't matter. You still see that, and that's sort of that sort of one of my grievances is that you know a lot of this stuff for ideological reasons gets reduced down to questions of war making as opposed to just what the facts are, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, deal with let's as we said early on in this episode and numerous other times. Let's get the facts right, then we can talk about policy. And as you and I both said, you know, we're numerous times uh, the, on on these podcasts, we're very hesitant about going into rushing into a new war when we can't properly settle or you know prosecute the ones we're currently in and one that we're we've negotiated. Which I essentially believe at this point is a is our negotiated our own defeat. In Afghanistan, so you know, you think I want to rush into going to war, Any, or anywhere else? I mean, for that matter, or anywhere yeah. else, just because Al Qaeda is no. But let's recognize the fact that Al Qaeda happens to be sheltering senior, um, or Iran happens to be sheltering senior Al Qaeda leaders. Then we'll dis- we'll go from there and discuss it. But we got to get the facts right. We can't even get the facts. And, right. and by the way, we're sitting here in 2020. And how many times through the years have we heard this is all about trying to gin up a war with Iran? And we're here in 2020. It's 19 years after 9/11. When did the war with Iran begin exactly? When did when, yeah, Tom, when, like, did, when did the remember, U.S. Yeah, we had the Seymour, remember the Seymour Hersh articles and that's all. exactly what I was going. Yeah. I remember I oh, I nonsense. tallied it up at one point in time where it was basically he said every year we were going to war yeah, with right. Iran. It's, that that year, I think I, I did it in like 2009. I want to to say, um, and then he stopped because Obama became president, and then I started seeing the the, the Trump administration was trying to go to war with Iran when. Yeah, it's very frustrating. I mean, the, again, if if you mention basic facts, you're branded as a warmonger. It's, yeah, by some by absurd. some in this debate, you know. I mean, I think I think yeah. most of our readers get who we are. Most of our listeners get who we are. Oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I just when when we're talking about branding, you're talking about the way things work in Washington, where there's just all sorts of yes. all sorts of problems in that 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 in that town. <laughs> period. Uh, you know, so yeah, I'll just say period, and we'll leave it there. Probably, yeah, yeah, but but. Um, so yeah, so that those I think I've got one other sort of grievance on here. I don't know if you have. Yeah, I'm sure you have other ones. I'll finish my. I, I do. I'll finish my list. You want to go? I'll ahead? finish my list, and then you can talk about your list. Sure. The last sure. thing I mind is social media. Um, as listeners of the podcast know, I don't like social media. I don't like being on social media. Uh, social media has a junior high school vibe to me. Um, I did not like junior high school. I did not like the junior high school vibe. Right. 
And a lot of the stuff I see on social media, it's a lot of people trying to dunk on each other. Um, you know, we've also developed a few little cyber stalkers on social media. I know, you know, we're not going to name them, obviously, on the show, but some weirdos out there who get obsessed with our stuff uh, for their own ideological reasons or because they have their own personal hangups. Whatever it is, I don't really care. Uh, if you're listening to this, if you're one of those people and you're listening to this, go get a life, do something else, um, you know, take a long walk, whatever, you know, have a scotch, have a beer, whatever, you know, just, uh, you know, get over yourself, get over us. Uh, and just move on with yourself, uh, you know, because it's really, you know, it's just bizarre. You know, it's just really strange. And there's a lot there's a lot going on in the world. But social media, to me, has unleashed all sorts of behaviors within humanity that are not so great. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, yeah there, there are benefits to it for sure. Um, you know, there's communication benefits. There are times where good causes get promoted. You know, one of the things I, I think year end is you see a lot of GoFundMes for people who legitimately need help, especially in this trying time. And some of the ways you get exposed to that through social media, through Twitter, I think that's great stuff. Um, there's all sorts of people out there who legitimately are sort of desperate for help right now. And, and that's why I kicked this off by saying, in reality, I don't really have any grievances when I see people who are suffering out there. But for every every uh, example like that I see, I see just a lot of vitriolic nonsense, you know. And I, I, I when every time I log on to Twitter, which is not very often... I often wonder, you know, how much is it disinformation or bad information or misinformation or just outright abject idiocy versus sort of real something that's really informative or, or worthwhile. And I, I really struggle with that looking at it, the whole thing. I know, I know you're you're barely on Twitter as well, right, Bill? Yeah, I, you know, the I try to just say no, but unfortunately, you can't. It's it's part of the job. So I do a, I do a minimal effort. I'm with you. You know, if you could go and build a time machine and and you know. People say, well, I'd go kill Adolf Hitler or whatever. I think I might prevent the rise of social media. I, I think that might be the thing, the the one good I can do humanity would be to destroy <laughs> any ability for social media to, be, to come into being. I don't know. I haven't really figured out how that would be done um, and uh, probably would get pretty bloody. But, uh, yeah, I think it'd be worth it. You know, in, it terms, in, of, the in terms of the downsides of all this, I mean, again, not saying there aren't any positives, but in terms of downsides of all this, I mean, it's well recognized, for example, and it's even overplayed, but it's still true that ISIS capitalized off of social media like no other. I mean, the rise of ISIS in – I'm still planning on an episode on doing on that, trying to bring some folks in to talk about it a little bit more and exactly how ISIS did it. We know We know some of the details, of course. Um, but ISIS, you know, beginning in 2013, 2014 in particular, capitalized on social media. That's part of how they built their, you know, short-lived caliphate with, and how they were able to disseminate their message and woo followers and that whole thing and how they built the whole marketing campaign around what they were doing. Um, you know, it sort of shows you that, you know, for, you know, the bad actors are able to exploit this pretty easily, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, you can't promote a somewhat half-baked conspiracy theory um you'll get banned from twitter or even in some cases legitimate news stories however you could be the taliban spokesman and not be taken down for three years so when you see things like this and he's promoting videos of, of attacks and uh you know all kinds of hor horrific stuff that twitter is clearly aware of but hey he's the taliban spokesman so he could stay on you know when i see uh inequities like that i think the whole thing just needs to go uh, but unfortunately, it's part of our world and uh, there's no turning back. Social media is here to stay. And um, I think I'm going to dig a deep, deep hole and bury myself into it. 
Yeah, I'm going to bury myself away from it. That's what I do. You know, one of, yeah. one of my only parting advice before we move on to the remaining year grievances, Bill, is, um, you know, turn turn it off. If I were to talk to listeners, just turn it off. Don't don't look at it at a certain point. You know, um, you know, sometimes you know we see people take swipes at us on stuff. I don't reply to much of it. If there's like an informed sort of critique, you know, I may engage with it. But if it's just some imbecile railing against us, you know, just forget it, you know, and most of the interactions we have on social media are actually positive, right? So I say that, but you know, most of the people, yeah. most people who kind of get us or try and figure out what we're talking about, you know, even, even so most of the stuff we see is, is positive, but still, I think that um, in terms of our work and what we're doing, but still, I see quite a bit of negativity, quite a bit of bad stuff out there. And social media, I think is amplifying a lot of crap and um, from all sides. And I just think that if my advice to listeners is get off it. You know, don't don't be on Twitter all the time. Don't be on Facebook all the time. Just go read a book, do something else. You know, yeah, anything else. Don't don't watch the New York Football Giants these days, but do anything else, right? Well, you know, that's funny that you mentioned that, Tom, because that is actually on my list of. Oh, I think I anticipated here, right? something from you here. Um, you know, look, you, you uh, listeners are spared this because you don't have video, but every week I got to see Tom's <laughs> damn New York Giants baseball cap <laughs> on top of his head, and if you're not aware, I'm an Eagles fan. And yes, I I, I am uh, very um, depressed in, in these days. Uh, so soon after a Super Bowl, but looking at that New York Giants t- t- uh, hat, Tom, I, I got a problem with it's that. It's not a hat, by the way. I've to... got a whole collection of my. I, un- yeah, I, I, I had un- a feeling that there were. Yeah, others, I this is actually they're... a different one this week than last week. I I throw one <laughs> each one. I yeah, I was wondering if you had noticed that I basically wear a different one almost every week. So, I I just identify them as New York yeah. hats, and I and then it all just sort of goes into a mash, and I and I hate you more and more for it every day, every week. Um, but I'm only kidding. Uh, Tom and I are both huge football fans. And um, we, we, we have some great conversations about football. And even though our teams are in the same division, um, we, we both – we analyze football, I think, Tom. Like we yeah, you know, if, uh, if, if actually if the, to, sport, to the sports media market wasn't so cluttered, I could see a, an alternative I, I, reality I, I, in which yes. I'd want to do that, you know. I mean, it's just because, you know, I'm very much into the analytics on the football side and figuring out what's going on and everything. And, you know, I, you know, am – uh, it's in jest. I'm keep wearing those hats, and I'll keep. Well, you know, one of the funny things is, is during this trying time, one of the reasons why I wear hats on this call on Zooms a lot of times when we're doing this um, recording is because during the pandemic, it's less frequent for me to get a haircut. You know, so, um, and so you you shave your head, Bill. So you got it easy when it comes to yeah. stuff like managing managing a, a, a thick mane of hair. You, that's not a problem you have to deal with, right, Bill? So. It's not a problem, and I got to tell you, I just wish it didn't grow back at this point, so I didn't have to shave it because that's a pain. But um, that was my little dig I, at you there, you, but I got you. So it's it's all good. I like I it. Turn the hat this conversation point. back on you. So <laughs> next, uh, my next grievance, though, a little more serious, uh, is that um, our U.S. military leadership. I'm talking about our general officers here. I think people who've listened to this show long enough will probably have an idea of what I'm going to say here. I'm going to keep it brief, though. I'm going to just be very specific. Um, I got a lot of problems with how our military leaders have become politicized, how Afghanistan, again, was the perfect example of this. You had, you know, failed generals rise to the top level of uh, military command. Uh, General Dumford's probably a great example. He his jo- previous job before becoming chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff, was he was head of uh ISAF, or International Security Assistance Force, which became Resolute Support, which was the NATO command, is the NATO command in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan was falling apart on his watch. 
and he was awarded with chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. We could talk about other um, fail upward generals. I'm not going to mention them, so I got a problem with that. But you know, even but I'm going to drill it down a little bit further. And, and by the way, military officers here. I'm not talking about you lieutenants and captains and majors and colonels. You guys are great. When I would embed with you guys out in the field, you were all professionals, and I I, I miss those times. Maybe I'll get that opportunity again. Um, but I'm talking about our generals, our, our admirals. Um, just stop groveling to our enemies, please. Every time the Taliban conduct a major attack, I get to hear a general begging the Taliban to return to the peace table, so-called peace table, to reduce violence, to do this. Just stop already. We have, a, we have a, an official branch of the U.S. government that's designed to grovel to our enemies. It's called the State Department. Let's let them do that, and then you go ahead and prosecute the wars against our enemies, and we'll be fine. Like, why do our generals need to suck up to the Taliban or, or things like this? It's, it's humiliating, frankly, and uh, I, I have a really, really big problem. Well, that's some hot fire there. I like that. Uh, <laughs> that's part of why we do the podcast, though, is to let it out, you know? Um, but, you know, there's, to make a subs- an additional point on that, right, it's, it's almost like if the generals actually did stick to war fighting and did their, and tried to actually win wars or win battles, right? Um, and I'm going to get to, I guess I'm going to add a grievance on top of here. Um, no, go for it. If, if they actually did that, um, you know, then maybe we'd have a, a better understanding of what's going on or a clearer sort of uh, debate about, you know, what uh, what's going on instead of just sort of saying, okay, everything's fine, everything's rosy, and, you know, we've... It's a stalemate in Afghanistan. Everything's okay. You know, we can just keep doing what we're doing. If there was actually pressure to perform, to win, um, as opposed to that, then maybe the outcome would be a little bit different. You know, uh, I don't know. I could not agree with you more, Tom. That's exa- that's what I'm getting to. Do your job as a general. Prosecute the wars against our enemies. If the government wants to, um, you know, the, the U.S. government wants to negotiate with a terror group or something, let the State Department do it. And you be there. You know, don't grovel to the Taliban when they they kill people in Ghazni or kill women and children. Just go ahead and launch an airstrike and say we got more of that in the tank for you, and let the let let our, let our State Department individuals. I won't use a derogatory term. I love you guys in the State Department too. You're you're all good. Um, but uh, well, not everybody, right? But a lot of them. But most yeah. of them. <laughs> I have friends in the state. See our conversation on Zalmay Klozak, right? So, you know. yeah, it goes to the top. So, yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, just let's just I, I like, you know, I guess I'm old school. I like my generals to be Patton's and, and Sherman. And by the way, I, another related thing. point on that, and this is a correlated point, is that if a situation is not tenable, if it's not sustainable, if it isn't something that's going to lead to a defined outcome where the military can actually achieve something definitive. Right. Um, and, you know, basically have clear successes, um, then say so. Right. I mean, if the if the political winds are erratic and basically the war fighting decision making out of Washington is erratic because the political class is erratic on something, there's no reason to go along with that. Right. You can say, yeah. oh, look, I mean, Afghanistan, you know, it could have said, you know, instead of going along with remember the whole the Taliban's momentum has been broken. Remember that whole thing in yep. Afghanistan, yep. which we debunked at the time, which, you know, again, cuts against the idea that we're trying to cheerlead the war effort. Quite, quite the opposite. You and I stood alone or virtually alone in saying, no, the Taliban's momentum has not been broken based on your own statistics. You know, um, you know, instead of going along with that, you know, it would have been nice if somebody stood up and said, you know, this isn't working and it isn't going to work, you know, and we have to have a conversation about what we're going to do here or not do here, you know. 
And Tom, that gets back to the political part, right? right? Because they're so in, a lot of these guys are so interested in their next command, getting that next star, you know, rising to the top that they can't admit failure. And so, you know, you got a you got a really perverse incentive structure here for generals to lie about what's happening in combat theaters, and they're doing a disservice to the American public, and they're doing a disservice to their own soldiers who are fighting and dying for them and for the American public. And um, frankly, it all disgusts me. Um, and I, uh, I wish it would stop, but I see no end to this insight. Well, you know, it's actually, this is why I meant my, my uh, initial grievance. You So recently, um, I think it's General Lloyd Austin, um, President-elect Biden has said that Joy, Lloyd Austin was going to be his nominee for SecDef, Secretary of Defense. And they this became... Um, I guess controversial because he's going to require a waiver just as General Mattis did to become SecDef because he hasn't been out of military service long enough to uh, avoid the waiver. So Congress is certainly having some pushback on this, which I applaud. I think, you know, we should have maintained civilian uh, leadership in uh, the Pentagon. Mattis shouldn't have gotten a a waiver and neither should, should Austin. Um, Couldn't agree more. We need, need civilian oversight. Um, But, you know, so the Biden team responds to that with a defense of Austin. And the first thing that Biden cited, President like Biden cited in his defense of Austin was, was it winning a battle? Was it winning a war? No, it was Austin oversaw the orderly withdrawal from Iraq. You know, I mean, I mean, come on, you know, I mean, I mean, that's not exactly going to go down in the history books with Sherman and Marshall and all these other people, right? I mean, it's sort of like, what, what the heck, you know? Um, and of course, the withdrawal from Iraq actually fueled the rise of ISIS, you know, helped fuel the rise of ISIS instead of keeping a residual force there, you know, at the time. Um, so anyway, you know, it, the point is, is that. Um, Tom, the one individual who had more visibility on the situation in Iraq and the status of ISIS in both Iraq and Syria would have been General Austin. And he cheerleaded for the withdrawal. And well, you know, I, I've seen some reports that he he actually recommended a residual force there and was overruled. And I guess he got into it with Michelle Florinay on this, who was another possible candidate for being Secretary of Defense. Um, whatever, I don't need to get into all history there. I mean, the point is, is that if that's really all you can cite is that he yeah. that he you know if that's the first thing out of your mouth is he got us out of Iraq, you know. You know, but Tom, how about um, you know what? I I can't agree with this policy. I'm going to resign. Please have someone else manage this withdrawal. Thank you. I've served my country. Um, you know, you could either move me or move me out. I mean, name a general that's resigned in the in 19 years of, of war because of disagreement, you know, legitimate disagreement on policy. I, I think the number is zero. I don't expect that number to grow. Yep. Do um, you have any other grievances for this episode? Yeah, this one's definitely uh, something you're not going to like. Look, the fact is that Ibn Khattab. Oh, here we go with the Chechen gear again. We're going on to the Chechen yeah, gear. Oh, God. Tom here, is the king of jihadist fashion. We're going for Chechen jihadi swag. Is that what we're talking about again now? Listen, if anyone who denies the fact that he is the king of that he was the king of jihadi fashion, I got a big problem with you, man. When you could mix urban camouflage with wooden camouflage with that black and white spotted fur hat. And have a, a club hand because you blew because a grenade blew up in your hand, explosives blew up in your hand. I mean, come on, man! How could you not like Ibn Khattab? How if you were jihadist, you would want to be dressed like him and emulate him? You know, I'm tr- you know it's true, Tom. Just 
Anyone who disagrees with this, I got a big problem with you. And that's all it. I'm going to say is you're objecting to my wearing of a New York Giants hat, but you're you're liking Ibn Kattab's hat. That's all I'm going to say. It's true. Yeah, I think Ibn Kattab is better than the New York Giants. Oh boy, I all said right. it. There it is. Well, now now you're an Ibn Kattab apologist. You should. I got I got some, I got some <laughs> Taliban apologists for you to look up there, Bill. I got some Taliban apologists for you to, to talk to because there's some people you can talk chat with on that. The reality is, is he was a monster, and I'm glad he's dead. But he certainly could sport the jihadi fashion. And by the way, there was a whole disconnect the dots effort on him, as you talked about. Yeah, the right. Chechens, uh, uh, absolutely. Know, so, and I mean, look, he's the, the Che Guevara of jihadists. What can you say? There should be a T-shirt of him with that hat. And of course, there should I, I, there shouldn't be a T-shirt of Che Guevara either. So you know, so <laughs> right. so. But if I gotta see Che, I gotta see. Yeah, him I would rather see either, either one of them. Neither one of them. But yes, yeah, that is it is that is what it is. Um, I think that's it. Do you have anything else? For- I, I that I've aired my grievances, which are really quite minor in the bigger scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know I'm repeating myself, but you know, 2020 has been a rough year for a lot of people. I certainly have not fared as nearly as poorly as a lot of other people have, and I, I just look around right now, what's going on, and just, uh, I don't know. Where uh, hopefully 2021 is a better year. That's all I can say, right? Yeah, that's that's it. Again, a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. Happy holidays to all of our listeners, to you and your families. Thank you so much for supporting us over the years. Yeah, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in again this week, or I guess we're going to have a couple episodes within uh, within a week here. Um, this is sort of, you know, we're trying to do something different with this podcast. As you can tell, we are, this is raw. You know, this is probably the type of stuff that will get us in trouble someday, but so be it. Uh, you know, we're just trying to give you sort of our unfiltered sort of uh, take on things uh, because that's just the way it is. And we hope you appreciate that and like it and keep listening to the podcast. Um, you know, if you could, I guess, again, I haven't even looked this up, as I keep saying, but on Apple Podcasts, I guess you can, can tune in and, and give us a five-star rating if you can. That helps drive other people to the podcast if you like it. Uh, if you like it and you want to do that, we appreciate it. Uh, that helps, I guess, with certain algorithms I don't understand in terms of driving traffic. That'd be great. Uh, but in any event, thank you for listening again to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. We're going to keep coming at you with episodes. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts, and we will see you again soon.